action. Uh, let's see. Let's uh, press that button, which means that I think it has happened. I think we are indeed live. Um, Ian, uh, hello. Uh, everyone, we have uh, Professor Ian Doherty is here. Hi, Gareth. How are you doing? <laughs> hello. Um, right, so... Um, I'm going to press, what am I going to, what am I going to press? I'm going to press a variety of buttons. Firstly, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to go, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to crack straight into the episode because we've got a lot to get through and it's uh, quite a tight one. So first of all, um, Ian is in the background. Tell, tell us about the, um, the sound balance people in the chat. Is it okay? We're going to look at the, um, uh, at the COVID stats to start with. Uh, and we're just, it's a very quick glance at the stats because we've got some other interesting data to look at. But first of all, um, cycling is, is, is nice. So the weather relative to this time in pre-COVID levels, I'm guessing, was, is, is, is a bit nicer because these are all relative figures, of course. Um, but actually, we're at over 140% of cycling, kind of a fairly nice sort of lump at the moment, which is quite nice. Uh, road vehicles, as ever, uh, right, you know, road usage, uh, different, but uh, about the level it was pre-COVID, even if the patterns have slightly changed. Bus usage is is rising again a little bit, so there's a little bit of a, a creep upwards again. So bus usage probably sitting around eighty percent. Rail, pleasingly enough, is now at um, or was at the last time that it had a confirmed number is at eighty five percent of pre-COVID levels. So I thought we'd be reaching a bit of an asymptote at eighty uh, percent, but actually it's continuing to climb, which is nice. Um, uh, and that's despite the fact that we're still running reduced timetables, particularly in 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 on the southern network in London, they're running vastly reduced uh, timetables, uh, and 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 so that my perception is that that's going to have an impact. But um, anyway, so that's quite interesting, really. Um, and what ties that? What so that eighty five percent is interesting for a number of reasons. I, I've got some data here, which is through from. Um, uh, the recovery of revenue, the overall big picture of revenue recovery. So this isn't ridership, this is revenue. Um, and uh, long distance revenue recovery is, is at 91%. Regional revenue recovery is 88%. London Southeastern revenue recovery is at 77%. So that's, you know, the total there is, is 84%. So interestingly, this wasn't the case before, but it's looking like uh, revenue and ridership are starting to match back in line again, which... Um, from everything else I've been seeing previously wasn't the case, that, that ridership had climbed much more rapidly than revenue had, had climbed. Um, so that I find very interesting, actually. Uh, the next slide, uh, and Ian, jump in if you've got some thoughts on any of this. But uh, the next slide, I think, is probably the most interesting one, which is a breakdown of revenue recovery by market sector. So the red stuff, uh, kind of this end uh, down here, is commuting. The green here is leisure. Uh, blue is business travel. And then the the orange is like uh, is just general within London um, kind of transport. What's quite interesting here um, is firstly we're looking at revenue for for short term for short distance leisure travel. It's it's way up one hundred and twenty percent, one hundred percent for uh, the black line. By the way, is the total industry figure. Um, the uh, and this is the, interestingly, I think this analysis is for is a little bit further behind than the revenue statistics I gave before, because you can see this black line is down at about 70% rather than being where it is now, which is 84%. So I think these are slightly older than the numbers I gave you before. But anyway, it's just interesting to see how how much leisure is 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 recovered well. Um, commuting, long-distance commuting, has actually recovered pretty well too, which is quite interesting, I think. But you see that the, the, the commuting to and from London and the, the short distance business travel and long distance business travel particularly have taken a big hit. Um, Ian, does this kind of match your understanding, given the statistics you've been collecting? 
Yeah, it does, Gareth. So, I mean, the business travel stuff is no surprise at all because lots of firms have begun to ask themselves a question about why did they pay hundreds of pounds to ferry people around for short things that they can do like this? Yeah. And I don't yeah. think that's ever coming back, frankly, because yep. there's, a, there's no business case for it. Yet, commuting, we know, um, we know that people that used the railways before the pandemic were much more likely to be in white collar jobs in city centres and more likely to be able to determine, at least in part, their own working pattern as we go back to the office. Yep. So, None of that surprises me. I mean, I'm actually, like you, more surprised by the pace of the recovery recently. Because mm. I thought it got stuck a bit as well. But Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, let's let's see how that pans out. Yeah, it might it might be a bit of a bump and it might it might you know, it might level out a little lower again. But I'm pleased to see that the the, the the you know, obviously, you know, both of us are big public transport advocates. It's good to see that ridership climbing more quickly. But yeah, I, I agree. There's I, I'm a bit wary of, of of overselling the fact that it's gonna be all you know, back to hundred percent at any point soon because Things have changed, uh, you know. Uh, anyway, that's you know. The thing I think it's a discussion that that we'll have. I think at a future point, and we'll, we'll talk about that later on. Spoilers, everyone. But um, yes, it's it's very interesting. See, it's worth saying that particular train operators. So, for example, LNER, I think way above pre-COVID level ridership now. Um, revenue not quite to the same level, but certainly above pre-COVID levels. Um, EMR, so so East Midlands uh, are at, you know uh, Harry Tance has just said they're reporting ninety percent of pre-COVID passenger numbers. So there's a, there's a mixed even within the long distance. You know, Avanti are quite a lot lower. So there's there's a, even within the kind of the, the long distance um, uh, leisure services or the long distance um, train operators. There's there's quite a mixed pattern. Anyway, that's quite interesting. Now. I'm going to roar through the news so we can get started because it's already ten past seven. So uh, Andy Burnham has tweeted. Uh, this was interesting. This got lots of people chatting and the takes were a mixture. So obviously this is uh, a bit disingenuous because £369 is is not what most people would spend uh, to get from Manchester down to uh, down to London or vice versa. And um, well, uh, and back. And also that that's a, a walk up fare, whereas these are advanced you know, flight you know, fares. However, it's not a bad tweet. It makes a fine point. Like the the, the people often do this it's like, and, and, and I get angry because lots of adenoidal people come in and say oh well uh, you know including you know and sometimes it's so egregious that even I get involved in it you know it's like well it's not really a fair comparison you know da, 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 da. And, and then don't really back up with and I always try to do this when I if people are asking me to refute this is, is then come up with no no but rail fares are too expensive <laughs> you know this idea of this commercial competitiveness that, that allows you to have such high and, and simultaneously low fares is not a particularly accessible thing to my mind. So um, lots of people would be angry about the Burnham tweet without then kind of acknowledging that rail fares are too high across the UK, um, relatively speaking. They are off-putting to a lot of passengers. Um, and, and indeed, the system is too complicated. Blah, blah, blah. We've discussed about this uh, at length. So anyway, Burnham tweeted. Next. Uh, oh, very quick news. Yeah, the Pendolinos are in the process of getting refurbished, uh, which is nice. They look, I mean, basically the same, frankly. It's a little smarter looking and all the tired seats are looking a bit a bit less red and a bit more blue. But, uh, you know, it's smart enough, but uh, it's not hugely dramatic. Uh, it is still the same train. Um, anyway, so that, that's happening. What else? Oh, yeah, strike. The strike is getting closer. Um, and uh, this, this is this is network rail uh, a massive network rail strike going on because it's not really it's, it's a bit of a shame network rail are kind of in the middle of this because actually it's really government that are forcing network rail to to, to enact massive cuts to its um, 
headcount, uh, including within safety critical roles like maintenance. Uh, and so the unions are quite rightly responding robustly. And I have to say, Network Rail are not doing a great job. Network Rail, certainly at the senior levels, are really not doing a very good job of, of coming out of, out of their response to the potential strike very well, including um, a director of comms at Network Rail um, who made people very angry for uh, coming out with some strange comments about people having should should you know people should probably have worked harder at school if they wanted better pay was one quote and then another one well the next quote I think was probably the most excruciating um, obviously the only op- you know pay equality is is socialism so so this quote was um, the person adding that the alternative to such pay inequality is socialism where you don't have pay differences like this um, no it isn't really but anyway noting sadly again there's not much evidence of successful fair and open socialist countries in the world anyway just don't say this folks <laughs> uh, this isn't the right thing to put onto a yammer chat within network rail to a lot of very worried staff um, so uh, yeah they're not covering themselves in glory at the moment um, Ah, yes. Sour times for Portishead. Um, uh, yes, the, the, the government has once again, and this, this is, I always like to have a news article that leads into the, the core of the piece. And this is no, no, this is a good example. Why on earth is central government having anything to do with a reopening of a railway line down in the southwest of England to the point where they can delay it by successive years? Uh, they've delayed their decision back to 2023. So it's another year of delay. Um, the the submission first happened in November 19, 2019. Um, that was when the DC the, the development consent order was um, submitted. It's just absolutely appalling that central government has anything to do with such a trivial bit of infrastructure. Just why on earth is central government involved in it at all? And I think this leads quite neatly into um, uh, very neatly, in fact, into into our discussion that we're going to have Ian. And um, and indeed, you know, relates back to an episode previously, not not so long ago, with John Stone about the fact that my, my kind of one of my big drums I like to bang is that it is impossible for public transport to get better without the UK decentralising power. Fundamentally impossible. Um, poor Ian's been stuck on the other side while I've ranted about the news. Ian, I'll be with you in moments, but uh, it only remains for 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 me to introduce the show. Um, everyone, welcome to tonight's Rail Natter. As the intercity 225 fades away, there it goes. Um, we're going to put up a lovely picture of um, lovely picture of Sterling with the uh, Wallace Monument in the background there. Um, I'm very fond of this campus, Ian. Uh, first of all, let's um, let's do this so that people can actually see <laughs> see that you're real and exist and aren't a series of sound bites that I've cobbled together in the background to pretend I've a guest. Ian, uh, welcome to Railnar. It's lovely to have you. Um, Thanks, Gareth. Great to be here. I should say that 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 picture on the campus is probably the best example of the final mile problem about <laughs> how to get from the, ra- the local railway station to where you actually want to be. That I know of anywhere in this island. But there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd, yeah. Challenged by when I used to work at the National High Speed Rail College in Doncaster, which was similarly nightmarish. You know, a high speed rail college and getting from the, getting from my the joke was that um, commuting from York to Doncaster, two cities next to each other, is impossible. Is almost impossible because most trains go through Doncaster without stopping. And then getting the bus from the station to anyway, it's just uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, so uh, it's it's ironic that uh, that um, that yourself in a in a department that deals with a lot of transport planning is <laughs> as a perfect example of the challenge of public transport at its footstep. Um, so Ian, yeah, uh, tell us about what what you do and and tell us about the 
Um, tell us about what you do at the University of Stirling and some of the other things you get involved in. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dennis. So, crikey, that shows you how long a day it's been for me. Um, I'm um, the dean of something called the Institute for Advanced Studies at Stirling. So we've got two roles. We are the doctoral college for the university. So I have oversight of all of our PhD students and other doctoral um, candidates across our degrees. And we also wear researchers from our, from our five faculties come together to do interesting interdisciplinary research. So I get the fun task of introducing scientists to historians and things like that. And yeah. out of those conversations come interesting, um, interesting innovations and, and some good work. My own background is I'm kind of interdisciplinary tart in the social sciences. <laughs> so my first degree was in geography, then I did a PhD in geography and economic and social history. Um, I'm really a political scientist and I've worked in business schools for most of my career. So I'm, I kind of float around across the disciplines in the social sciences and some of the humanities. Transport has always been my uh, research interest, although clearly I've got um, other interests and wider issues about regional planning and the economy. And mm. most recently was part of a merry band of non-economists who were given some money by the research councils to think about productivity from a non-economic standpoint and so think through some of the issues that we'll know that talk today about uh, what things like investment and transport infrastructure really does for the economy in mm. comparison to what people say it might do uh, interesting yeah so uh, yes yeah, so, i mean the, the advance the, the people who comment best on transport and understand transport are generally generalists actually or certainly people who have a broad understanding of, of political context i, I think they're, they're, i see lots of people who try who talk, well i mean lots of people talk about and spend a lot of time talking about rail and talk about transport whilst just entirely avoiding political context as if as if as if that is essentially any sort of meaningful analysis so uh yeah it's um it is certainly well there's uh, a lot of politics about devolution which we may well talk about so that that's clearly a an issue which has been important up here, shall we say? Absolutely, yeah. And um, and so yeah, we've. I mean, we've 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 kind of interacted on Twitter for a very long time and, and kind of discussed uh, transport. Policy. I usually manage to call you Gareth on Twitter. <laughs> You're obviously more awake when I tend to do that rather than today. So. <laughs> that's okay uh, i've received two emails today from people calling me dennis it's it, it's a consequence of having two first names uh I, I'll, I'll 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 give you that so um let's get our miniaturized faces up the last time we uh we kind of had a a lengthy discussion was actually uh, apologies for my face was actually when we both uh well I, certainly i had the privilege of, of of speaking at the transport select committee um me a bit of a faker and three other actual professional academics um it was a slightly surreal experience when i was being referred to as an academic and and, and some such and, and i have absolutely no expertise within what i was talking about but i was uh, yeah it was it was a good session I, I thought it'd be worth just for five minutes having a bit of a debrief because yeah we it was an interesting session what what was your perception of, of firstly kind of whether there'll be any beneficial consequence of the session but also how kind of how it went and some of the questions what, what were you thinking in that session well let's answer those in reverse order yeah. um, will there be any beneficial outcomes of these sessions that's um a bit of a big ask for lots of these things because of course politics that we've talked about intervenes so you know let's see there's a lot of politics around when it comes to the irp and hs2 and the subjects that we were were talking about so yeah let's let's see how that pans out i was pleasantly surprised by it i have to say and um, i thought it was pretty constructive i thought some of the conversation particularly about the real value of investment in high-speed lines and, and the impact they might have if, if they were managed properly in an economic development sense. That was a better discussion than I expected us to have, mm. particularly given the number of relatively recent Tory entrants that are in the committee. Yes. So, you know, I was pleasantly surprised by the, the tone of that debate and it didn't really default to the 
the worst of the political um, punch and GD that we've had over SS2 in particular. So, yeah, I, I, I thought it was quite good. And I thought um, I thought the chair did a, a good job in our, our session in particular, moving it on and getting across the lots of the key issues. Yeah, I have to agree. I was, I'd watched the previous session and was pretty disheartened after it. In fact, I couldn't watch the whole thing because it was so disheartening. The, the Burnham session, I just found it really difficult to watch and, and Transport for the North were there as well. And I was worrying that the session would be the same for us, but it wasn't actually. It was, um, it was such a it was actually it was it was really constructive and I, I, I was yeah I was pleased that who did um did did the job that he did as, as chair yeah definitely so let's get rid of my oral face um or at least having two of my faces on the screen at once because it's dreadful um oh it's a lovely one five six actually I've I've cheated because this is a one five six in um it's in the National Express first uh sorry the National Express uh Scotrail colours but actually it's got the first Scotrail stickers on it. So I've, uh, I was trying to get the nice um, National Express sort of three. Anyway, I'm waffling. Basically, um, let's get on with chatting about <laughs> privatisation. Um, and actually, I think the first thing to talk about, uh, and, and, and I'm going to be referring back to a piece that, um, uh, yes, yeah, so, some discussion points that you've you've kind of discussed elsewhere, actually. So, so we'll refer back to those. But it's talking about the aim. I think, I think the first thing to talk about is what was the aim? What do you perceive as and what was the intended aim of privatisation? Feels like a good starting point. Yeah, well, there are several answers to that one, aren't there? Depending on the level of political cynicism that you want to underpin the analysis. <laughs> and, you know, I should say that my very good friend and close colleague, John Shawett Plymouth, has uh, wrote the book about British Rail privatisation, which is still the one, which I think is the go-to text on mm. what really happened at the time, because John had access to the people who were really thinking that through in the key period in the early 90s when um, everything was actually happening. So, well, the, the cynical political answer to that, of course, is that um, the Tory government of the time, post Black Wednesday, probably had a, a moment when it realised it was in its last term and it wanted to slash and burn and privatise everything that was left and yeah. hadn't been done and didn't quite you know, get as far with some others as they'd hoped. But that, that was that was the real sort of one that they wanted to do. A slightly more sophisticated answer, I think, is that there were people in government at the time, both on the, the political side but also in the civil service, who took a particular long-run view of the railways, thought they were in terminal decline, wanted to avoid another beaching and another circle, because remember that was only 10 years previously, and, and thought in a fairly orthodox way at the time that the injection of private capital would be more accurately letting the, the operators borrow in the market to invest in infrastructure and rolling stock and services would save the railways from that kind of decline and a dose of entrepreneurial spirit would helping marketing and attract passengers back. So there's all that kind of standard story. And I think that lots of people really did believe that at the time. So that would be my my view on why privatisation really happened. Um, you know, you, you can take your pick about whether it was a success or not. It very quickly unravelled, of course, particularly on the infrastructure side. We know that passenger and freight numbers, but passenger numbers increased substantially. So the public subsidy, of course. So, you know, um, what was the point of it? And there was a few. The generous interpretation was it was saving the system from terminal decline. Did it work? Well, at least it, it succeeded in saving the railways from terminal decline. But whether it was better than the, any of the alternatives we could have come up with, either in terms of the form of privatisation that we had, because of course it didn't have to be that kind of ultra fragmented system that Christopher Foster was fondest of, um, or whether we'd had some kind of different model of state ownership about you know who knows yeah it's interesting what one of the things i always find surprising is that is that firstly you can compare the you know 
I, I often make the point, and I did this in my like right back in one of my earliest episodes about the advanced passenger train, and, and like I tried to answer the question if the APT had succeeded, what might have happened? Um, often, the, you know, macro effects just dwarf some of these, even though there was such a radical difference in the way the railway was structured. Actually, um, you can you can look to Northern Ireland to see a system that remained in state operation, and their relative percentage increase in ridership is the same as it was in GB. Um, so. And the other thing, of course, is well, is is that isn't mentioned often is that the the, the general trend in increasing ridership started in the mid eighties. Actually, so, you know, the, the the kind of the early sectorization was quite successful in 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 actually reversing some of the the general declines. Um, and, and there was a drop, quite a steep drop after the the early nineties recession. But kind of you'd expect there to be, given the state of Britain was in the eighties. Whereas you know, if you look at the recession in the you know the the big recession in the um, in 2008, that drop, you can see a, a slowdown, but the drop is much less pronounced because people had a quite a long period of better living conditions and better standards of living. Um, so again, the macro effects are bigger than the railway. We like to be insular in the rail industry and think that everything we do is it has has all dramatic changes, but actually the world is bigger than, than us in our family. Oh, listen, I'd, I'd agree with you, and these effects are often orders of magnitude bigger as well yeah. than little tweaks that happen within any economic sector that you talk about and so if you look at the, the level of restructuring that went on in the british economy about how we earn our money and where people lived and where they worked yeah that tells you a lot of the story about what happens in the railways irrespective yeah. of ownership or governance absolutely yeah there were the shifts huge shifts in sort of urbanization reversing you know london for goodness sake the population started climbing and that tallies with you know these huge macro effects as you say that are dwarf any little changes we could make in our funny little industry so Privatisation, there's, there's a bit of context. Um, so the next question then, which ties into the story that we're telling, the story about Scotland's railways, is is did that privatisation, the, the, the Railways Act 1993, did it account for any sort of devolution, not even just for Scotland, but even perhaps to the cities? Because, of course, the passenger transport executives existed. You know, how did any form of devolution, but obviously focusing on Scotland, uh, did it exist at all within that within that act? That's an easy question. No, it didn't. <laughs> okay. No, I can't say for it at all. And a really interesting thought experiment, by the way, is to think about what might have happened if, as most people expected, Labour had won the 1992 general election, mm. some form of devolution to Scotland and Wales had occurred at that point, and we'd inherited um, BR as it was immediately before privatisation, which, of course, was a, in Scotland's case, was a vertically integrated operation that was responsible for just about everything other than cross-border services. So it's, it's, you know, yeah. what was happening then was that there was a series of, sort of poli parallel politics that was going on. Mm. So up here, um, post-92, there was a real, uh, and I think, profound shift in public attitude towards devolution, which had been kind of like gently in favour, but sceptical up until then, and until, and sorry, after the 92 election, you began to see things like, you know, street demos, not hardcore nationalists either, mm. who were pretty upset about the result and the fact that the Tories, of course, had done really badly in Scotland in too, um, and that things had to change. But in a legislative way, you know, lots of things happened here that didn't take account of that. Another really important one, which is rele relevant to the transport debate, is the reform of local government in Scotland that happened um, in 1995. And the legislation was sort of coterminous with the, the railways legislation that abolished the two-tier structure that we'd had since the 70s and which stuff like PTE was based on. So there was lots of things happening there which were pretty straight ahead Tory government intervention yeah. um, and were, you know, really redolent of the debate at the time about who are you to be doing this to us when we didn't vote for you. 
Mm. So, you know, there was there was really quite an interesting political context to a lot of that. But short answer, that was a very long answer when I could have just said no. <laughs> yeah. So actually, an interesting thing that if I bring up is actually um, is some of the stuff that was going on um, sort of within within the railway sphere related to devolution post-1993. So I, I don't know whether you want to kind of walk us through sort of this sequence of... Yeah, I suppose people outside Scotland might, might not know some of this history. So hmm. um, one thing that's important to realise is that devolution to Scotland is what we call legislative devolution. So essentially what happened in 1999 was that the Scottish Parliament was created, but it assumed democratic responsibility for administration that was already devolved. Yeah. So the Scottish office had gradually accumulated powers in particular since the 1930s. Um, and lots of domestic policy in Scotland, particularly in the kind of socioeconomic domain, of which transport was one, um, was increasingly devolved in administrative sense from the 30s. Um, big dose of that in the 60s as well, actually. And then, um, So by the time 1999 came around, there was actually quite a lot of um, domestic policy that was run by Scottish ministers, mm. who were then just the members of the UK government appointed by or in the normal process, but nonetheless, they acted um, and promoted Scottish legislation and that went through the Commons. So what happened was that then moved to the Scottish Parliament, but the actual responsibilities um, in terms of competence that um, the Scottish Parliament was was given at that point really wasn't different at all from what had gone before. So that's generally not understood. And that's why we had this thing called the McLeish Settlement, because of course, the railways were not devolved. It was not clear... Yeah how devolution of the railways would be achieved quickly, particularly because unpicking the financial structure of the industry was going to be so difficult and devolution didn't attempt to, to talk about um, the way that Scotland was funded at all in the first round. So it was kind of put in the too difficult basket. McLeish, of course, became First Minister, who was the junior minister in the government at Westminster when devolution went through, came up with this um, settlement compromise, as you, you may like to call it. And that was essentially about giving an advisory role for ministers and the new Scottish executive, um, now called the Scottish Government, and give guidance to the SRA. So it, it was very minimal. And then after that, we had the 2005 Railways Act, um, and that was quite an interesting period, to put it mildly. I was the special advisor to the Scottish Parliament Committee that was tasked with reviewing the legislation. That was rushed through just before the 2005 general election, if you might remember. Um, and that's kind of similar to some of the other devolved settlements at the Merseyside idea where it's not just central government in Whitehall or Westminster that is the franchising authority. So then after that, Transport Scotland, which was being set up at that point, became the franchising authority for the Scottish services, both ScotRail and the Sleeper, of course. Yep. Um, and there was really quite a controversial discussion about how the devolution of infrastructure funding would be mm. uh, would be taken forward. So that was put into the Scottish block, effectively, the Scottish Parliament has to has to spend, but you know, we could have a whole episode about whether yeah. or how that calculation was done and you know whether it actually reflects what's democratically correct, the Barnet formula, what the railways in Scotland look like, etc. Sorry, Rail Nazar so hates happened. the Barnet formula. We're not Barnet yeah, formula fans. <laughs> By twenty fourteen then the Smith Commission was the commission that Cameron announced the morning after the NDRF, of course. And um, the debate here had moved to so why are why is the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Government, responsible for real franchising? Why does it fund it? But it's obliged to have a particular kind of franchising competition that only a private sector company can operate. Um, and that reflects the fact that railways, um, to use the legislative jargon, are mostly reserved matters, actually. Mm. So the, the, the key legislative and legal framework of railway operation, according to um, 
government documents. There's the great um, House of Commons library document on this. It sets out position really nicely. They are actually still quite reserved because of the nature of network rail in particular and the way the system is uh, is funded. But it became a political anomaly here that Scotland was obliged to have a private sector operator when there was something of a political consensus that we'd rather have a public sector one, which I'm sure you'd like to come back to and ask me why that's the case, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks for that summary. You'll be pleased that Lin Man Fu has just quoted Ron Davis uh, at us, which is good because that's a quote that I think you use quite regularly. is a process, not an event. Absolutely, so. yeah. <laughs> thanks, Lin. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think And I this... think I said in that L piece, actually, the railways are probably the best example of where devolution yeah. has, in fact, been a process yeah. rather than an event of any area of policy in Scotland today. And, 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 and as we'll get to shortly, you know, this is a process that's going to run long. It's not getting wrapped up anytime soon. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, right. Okay. Excellent. That that was good. So, uh, and kind of on that theme. In fact, it's not. In fact, not that many slides away because I think pretty much now is how we're going to discuss about how that's going to continue looking. The fact that we have got a situation where, to to a greater or lesser extent, yes, there is devolution continuing to happen within the broader rail organisations. You know, network rails regions and routes are sort of getting a bit more power, but at the same time, there is a new and massive re-centralisation effort going on. Um, not just within the railways, but central government continues to centralise more and more power and not to DFT, but to Treasury, you know. So um, within that context, I thought I'd, I'd kind of break down. And, and I suppose the key thing with this is, uh, is, you know, is the combat of Great British Railways versus improve, you know, increased devolved powers and, and how this ties together. And I thought I'd, I'd pick a little microcosm. I'd, I'll briefly grab the mic off you, Ian, and, and just sort of do a little microcosm. And you might want to, this might be a humorous way for us to look at the bigger picture and some of the more perhaps dramatic consequences that, that, that GBR might have. So there's one quote that I that I pulled out when we were looking at, um, at the GBR report, um, whenever it was, over a year ago now, quite a while ago. Um, and actually, there's a section of this, which is which is one line which I felt potentially captures the attitude of GBR to the devolved um, rail operations, which is, this is about branding. Variants to the national brand will be developed to reflect the English regions, Scotland and Wales, while emphasising that the railway is one network serving the whole of Great Britain. Okay. Um, and now this is interesting because Scotland has a very well-recognised railway branding. It's actually a very recognised um, brand. I think it's a successful brand. I think much like um, Wales' uh, new unified transport branding, I think the ScotRail branding is very good. Um, and, you know, what does G what's GBR going to do? I mean, there is the opportunity to to tweak, you know, to get the, the double arrow back in there. I don't, And, and the double arrow is still used ex extensively across Scotland. But are we going to see a situation where GBR, you know, this is just the microcosm of branding, let alone all of the other critical issues across the industry. Are we going to see a situation where GBR starts elbowing in and, and, and using the fact that it actually has will have reserve powers to start changing things in Scotland? You know, will it be saying, actually, get rid of all your current branding? We, we, want, it, we want there to be a full GBR brand um, across the whole of Scotland. So I think that's an interesting microcosm. And it's one of it's probably one of the smaller. I think it's still important, but one of the smaller questions that the transition team are going to have to deal with. So, yeah, Ian, what, what are your kind of thoughts on GBR versus uh, Scotland and ScotRail? Well, at the risk of being impolite, um, my reading of the GPR paper was that they hadn't really thought about this very much at all, yep. frankly. Um, it's probably in a too difficult basket. I know if you speak to colleagues on Merseyside, where they've got you know different political contexts, but actually um, operationally similar kinds of devolved issues, mm. 
they would tell you, I think, that they've not got a clue what GBR means for them either in terms of what's really important. And branding, interesting point, of course, is that the ScotRail branding and the, the salt tire devices that were used and predate the SNP government. A lot of people can conflate yeah. that with the politics, but it was actually Tavi Scott, as uh, he was the Lib Dem transport minister at the time, he was really up for that and thought, you know, that was a, um, a way to create, create a coherent brand for the railways and start to reposition them in Scotland as forward looking and dynamic and all that stuff. And, you know, Transport Scotland did a really good job at the time in putting that together. And it, yeah. um, you've shown some interesting liveries that have adorned trains in Scotland in earlier slides. I'm one of those people who thinks that, and it's a tiny issue in many respects, but oh, hasn't graphic design and livery been one of the absolute failures of privatisation? Yeah. Be in the book, but all this kind of stuff. Um, so I think the ScotRail brand we've got is really good. Yeah. And um, interestingly, of course, one word that doesn't appear in, doesn't appear in the final iteration of that was it was originally going to be Scotland's national railway, but that disappeared because that was seen as being too political. <laughs> um, oh, and that, that's interesting because that makes that Scotland's case, railways. Sure, there'd be a big red line. Yeah, 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 yeah. Scotland's railway um, always seems a bit weird as a as a sub as like a subtitle because it's like, well, I mean, yeah, that is what ScotRail means, but that makes more well, sense. That, given that, it had that, the word that national. you put up from GBR says that the, there needs to be one national network serving Great Britain. You know, any political scientist would tell you that's a non secretary anyway. Yes, yeah, um, right. and reflects the politics of the authors but there you go yeah so I mean, the answer is nobody knows one one senior wagon industry i know well up here said that he expects it to an, amount to nothing else than an instruction to fly the union flag on major stations <laughs> yeah yeah that's a fair point it's it's worth also highlighting that um that actually it's a case of Scottish, and not the first and certainly won't be the last, a case of Scottish policy steering UK policy or GB policy or, or certainly Westminster policy, which is ScotRail was the first of the privatised train operators to, to have a, a branding that was developed to transcend um, the, the private company owning and operating the, uh, the, the or, or operating the fleet, not owning the fleet. Um, and then, of course, that became an idea that the DFT started liking quite a lot, and we saw. I think GWR was possibly the first of the, and then it and then it followed that we started seeing several. There were they they abandoned the, um, and quite rightly, it was always daft that you would repaint trains after three years. It was just a doolally wasteful and confusing policy. But anyway, so yeah, Scotland again, sort of pointing out that the, the the sort of strangeness of Westminster policy, um, not for the first time. So yeah, I. I GBR is going to be interesting, and and I, I've got some interesting conversations booked in actually with some interesting people directly related to some of this, which I I, I probably won't be able to report back on in a public forum anytime soon. But I'm certainly keeping a very close eye on this. Actually, branding is important, and and it for me it's almost a canary in the coal mine actually. So so I'm keeping an eye on, on how this develops. See, seeing as we're here and we're talking about branding, and I'm a massive fan of the design manual and all the rest mm. of it, please can we preserve the sanctity of the double arrow and not mess around with it for short-term political considerations, you know of which I speak. Absolutely. Well, you might notice there's a thing behind me up here. This is the, and you can't see the top of it, but that is um, Wallagram's corporate identity manual uh, hard hardbound uh, copy which is very nice and i'd strongly recommend people to yeah i've got one in my office as well if i were there yeah i could, I could have held mine up to go <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely um yeah there is some good and there's discussion about branding that i'm going to have uh, in a few episodes generally because there is some good stuff happening about rail branding uh, both kind of across the across gb and and certainly within uh, sort of the devolved uh, areas that's a discussion for another time though so 
Oh, yeah, you and I both care about branding because not only is it interesting and, 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 and nice to look at, but also it's really important. Actually, it's really important to a load of things, including ridership and, and how much people are interested in, and, and have ownership over their public transport systems. So next question with said branding uh, in the background, which I, I really do think it looks great, by the way. I think the ScotRail branded trains look fantastic. They really do. Um, it's, it's better from a distance than it is from um, as close up as well. Yes. So if you, if you get to see the whole train set from a distance, you know, one of the, my favourite money shots is if you're driving down the M80 under Castle Perry Viaduct, uh, Viaduct yes. in the main, and, uh, in uh, Glasgow main line and you see a seven or eight car, yeah. 385 train that's done up with that. And of course, the clever part of the branding is you'll notice that the arrows at each end become the salt tower when the units are joined together. It's, you see the whole train set, you get to see just how clever it is. It's an arrow at each end and salt tires in the middle. It's very clever, very simple, but actually really effective. Anyway, th- yeah, this this has become branding natter, everyone. Um, so, a, a bit about what the hell is going on, because there are going to be plenty of people watching who kind of are aware that this has happened. You know, twenty exactly 25 years of private operation now switched back to, to national ownership. But why has it happened? What's the story? What, what, how has it happened? Why has it happened? Um, tell us, tell us, tell us the story, and we shall sit back comfortably, and you can tell us the tale. Oh yeah, thanks, thanks for, <laughs> for that invitation. Um, I should say to people, of course, that I was um, both a non-executive director of Transport Scotland for almost five years, and then of the ScotRail operating company under its previous incumbent. So I have seen a lot of this close up, and people often say a lot of it's my fault, so I should probably put that on the table for a start. <laughs> um, why is it returned to state operation? Um, my take on this is that one thing you have to understand about the current Scottish Government is that it is so wedded to its main purpose in life, which of course is constitutional change, that when it comes to doing the task of domestic governance, it's desperate to be perceived as competent above anything else because political scientists amongst us will know the importance of competence and in being able to have a long-run government and of course the SNP administration has now been in power in various forms since 2007. So if you take together its its project, its desire for competence, what it actually, what it desperately needs is domestic policy issues not to cause problems not to be on the front pages of the papers mm. and not to you know give the media a stick to hit the government over. Now what I think is interesting about the, the privatised operation of ScotRail is that it, it did a lot of those things and made life very difficult for the government for a number of reasons. So you know those of us who understand the industry know that the way the franchise model works is that the operators are incentivized to spend lots of money in enhancement improvement at the beginning of the franchise period and then they, they reap the the revenue benefit late on in the franchise period so there's a kind of hockey stick curve yeah. issue that goes on so in the last round the seven years of the abelio franchise there was a hell of a lot of money that was poured into modernization of the network in scotland in scotland particularly the edinburgh Glasgow electrification and upgrade etc etc and but it was very disruptive much more disruptive than people expecting it to be. We had our own version of, although not quite as bad, of the timetable change issues that plagued Southern um, and Northern uh, and England. So we had the same kind of thing. We had a reliability crisis, you know, where every um, every government minister in the cabinet, first thing they looked at in the morning was the PPM stats on their phone to see whether that was <laughs> going to cause a, a, you know, a problem in the media later that day. So, it, you know, it got really ludicrous. 
Um, and the problem was it just, it just became too politically difficult. And there was a, a great example a few years ago when there had been a kind of cluster of delay incidents. And one of them happened, there was a points failure or something outside between Haymarket and Waverley. An hour before First Minister's questions one day, the entire railway went into meltdown. Um, and the First Minister nearly lost it by saying, you know, can we get a grip? Uh, this was a failure of the infrastructure, which is a reserved matter. Yeah. It wasn't to do with the operations in our franchise. So can we please actually understand how complex railway governance and devolution actually is? Because as we talked about earlier on, network rail remains reserved. The economic regulation of the system is reserved. The kind of franchise contract that was in place previously was still reserved. But then um, the operator or the choice of operator more accurately was a, a devolved responsibility given Transport Scotland to become the franchising authority. So my take, Scottish Government was getting lots of political uh, pelters, to use the local vernacular, um, because of difficulties in the railway, which were systemic due to the structure of franchising and the way that the investment profile work, was working, and they'd had enough. However, you also have to give credit to the trade unions and the opposition parties, particularly the Labour Party. They realised this was an issue they could get some purchase on, yeah. um, and they pursued it diligently and vigorously. Um, and when the rebasing of the franchise and the decision to extend Abelio's contract from seven to ten years came up, I think it was a fairly easy political choice for the government to say, you know, actually we'll take this back into public ownership. But again, as we'll talk about in a minute, big case of be careful what you wish for. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things I've said, certainly in, in the later years of the franchising system, which is obviously now entirely collapsed. Um, uh, in, okay, in the earlier years, this this maybe is a bit of an oversimplification, but in the later years where the DFT had total control over the franch over the way a franchise could operate, like almost no wriggle room for the way that a franchise could operate, those franchises essentially were the government outsourcing the blame for anything. It was they were paying a company to exist for them to blame for things, to be a bit of a shield against the heat of something going wrong, um, whether it was a network rail failure as often it was or whether it was a train operating co a company issue at all. And it's interesting that as soon as that, as soon as that shield stopped working, it beca immediately became politically expedient for the shift to happen. And that happened in Scotland. And then not too long afterwards, it's happened for the rest of the GB as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But one thing I would say is that you know, the, the statements here about Scotland the Village or Scotland the Goldfish Bowl are true. And the political culture up here is is different and there are positives and negatives to this. So, positive side, and this is something that devolutions definitely draw, is that the level of accountability for the performance of public services that the Scottish administration has is really high, actually, mm. in the public debate. The downside of that, well, let's not say the downside one, <laughs> One of the other facets of that, although I'd argue it's a downside because it gets in the way of strategy, is that every operational problem that happens in any public service instantly becomes the political issue of the day. Yeah, okay. So it becomes, First Minister, why is the 9.54 to Alloa late? First Minister, why is my brother's operation being cancelled? First Minister, why is the school classroom leaking? Mm. So the politics just become really parochial very quickly. And you know, Kate, that's, that's a that is accountability in action, but it also makes it really hard to do strategy, strategy sometimes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so that so with that said, and, and we've kind of led ourselves into it quite nicely, actually, the next question really is, right, so this has happened. What are the challenges that not just ScotRail, 
that Transport Scotland and the Scottish Government are now going to face? Uh, and I suppose uh, I've got some kind of guide slides because it's such a big question, really, and it'd be mean to just leave this slide up and ask you to go in head first. So um, I thought I'd kind of start with, with decarbonisation as, as a theme. You know, it, it, to what extent is this a, a challenge now? Is this threatened by the change or is it an opportunity? You know, I, but, but, you know, how is, how is the idea of decarbonisation going to be influenced and, and, and how is this, a, you know, what, what does this shape? So Scottish government has gone for this big time, um, not just in the railways, but you know they, they make a thing about having more ambitious climate targets than the UK government. Yeah. Um, I think I think they mean it, mm. and I think they mean it for two reasons. I think they mean it because they're signed up to the agenda, and of course they're bringing in the Greens the government uh, after last year's election means that that's even more of a political priority for them. But I do think that we see investment in decarbonisation as being a way of creating high-skilled jobs that have to be in Scotland because mm. you can't you can't electrify the railway network over the internet yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you know there's a, there's a bit of industrial strategy going on here as well and it's not something that the current Scottish government's done very well actually you know they've big story in the papers today about how much they've they've missed out on the the jobs potential from the renewables revolution and I think that's a fair critique actually so there's some realization of that and I think they're they're keen to make sure that doesn't happen again it also of course is a nice way of rebalancing transport policy and spending money on things other than roads, which is what some ministers have decided to do. Yeah, and absolutely. Of course, we can talk about that all night as well. But there's, <laughs> it's definitely a way. It's definitely a way of maintaining capital investment in the railway network when, perhaps, in typical transport econometrics terms, it's not the best place to put your money. It's yeah. It's um. It's certainly an interesting one, isn't it? Because you. you I often make the point with when it comes to decarbonisation, the most important thing, and electrification feeds this, but actually the most important thing is to just get people out of their cars, right? And actually electrifying the railway, whilst it allows you faster trains, lighter trains, cheaper trains to maintain, all this stuff, actually, arguably, it doesn't make as much difference as just enacting major policies. No, it to, doesn't. And to, something else that's really interesting up here in a policy, policy terms recently is that over the last 10 years, we've bundled up electrification schemes with really quite radical line improvements in some respects. So the E&G mainline is the best example. Yeah. The one that became politically controversial recently was the, the downgrading of the East Coast Ride electrification yes. project. So what Scottish government has decided to do there is electrify the line, not redouble it, uh, and not do some other capacity enhancements, because that was based on a a business case that was about peak hour commuting but frankly no longer exists and isn't likely to come back soon. So um, they're pressing ahead with electrification and I think we need to be pleased about that because as I say, um, we're fortunate in Scotland that we've got probably a broader base transport appraisal system than Mm. the DFT has been operating, which is why we've done more reopenings and we've taken different decisions. Um, And a lot of these schemes might not have survived if they were in England, but we're going to press ahead with them. Yeah. Which actually neatly leads into the next slide because, okay, that's decarbonisation, but what about, uh, well, okay, firstly, to to a greater or lesser extent, the the Greens' plan and what the Greens said they wanted to do now that the, you know, in their Rail for All plan, they're in government, they have control over large elements of transport. Um, What does nationalisation of ScotRail mean for that? And then I suppose connecting to that, what does it mean for reopenings, for new lines, new stations? What, how, do, how do you think this change is going gonna, is gonna to alter that? So reopenings cost money, right? Reopenings obviously have a capital cost. They've known what's happened to capital costs of projects, but they also add to the ongoing revenue subsidy requirement. Mm. Um, 
And in the recent Strategic Transport Projects Review 2, which was published, I'm not sure whether this quite made it into explicit text in the review, but essentially the Scottish Government's position is that the revenue requirement for the railways is huge. It's ballooned because of COVID as well. Mm. Um, and we just can't afford to keep reopening lines that add to the revenue requirement. So, you know, if you look at the Rail for All um, document, everybody would like more railway, right? We'd all like more railway. We'd especially like closed lines to reopen. You know, in, in, a, in a sense, it's been, it is mother in apple pie, but we're all in favour of that. We all like more railway. Who's going to pay for it? And crucially, given um, the railways are now part of the Scottish budget, and remember, the devolved government has to have a balanced budget yeah. essentially every year. It can't just borrow to get its way out of a shortfall. Um, a pound spent on the railway is a pound spent not spent on something else. And there isn't borrowing slack in the short term to make up for overspend. So the, the level of financial control the Scottish government's got to impose on the system now is really quite tight. Now, I'm actually surprised that they've been able to um, sustain a position of as much revenue support for the system um, post-COVID as they have. Because in, in, a, in round terms, the amount of money that Scottish government spending on railways has doubled in about five years. Mm. Huge amount of the Scottish budget. It's up to something like 1.1% GDP, I think. Um, so reopenings are really costly. And if you've got such an an ambitious decarbonisation plan, and if the timescale is really important, which it is the Scottish Government, and it is to carbon budgeting, then I'm afraid for the next cycle we've got to decarbonise what we've got before we build any more. How does that... So I, I mean, this is a, it's a disappointing thing for lots of people on here to hear, I'm sure, but it is the pragmatic truth. This is the situation. To what extent... Are there are two things that jump to my mind. One of them is that um, the one, thing dec one thing electrification offers is a reduction in operating, in operating costs. To, to, it'd be interesting to understand to what extent that could offset, you know, almost a bit of a, a, a kind of a, a revenue budget switcheroo there. Well, listen, it will do, but not enough. Not right? enough, so yeah. The government, the, the decarbonisation plan you show is well aware of the ongoing revenue support reductions you get by operating more efficiently, electrified or whatever. So, I mean, that's all baked in. Yeah. And that's why civil servants in Transport Scotland were able to convince ministers on the Scottish exchequer function that this was the right thing to do. So, you know, that, yeah. that's been one, and that's really good. If you look at the map that you've got there, though, on the Rail for All um, document, these reopenings we're talking about are a bit like the Borders Line, essentially. You know, they're, they're long rural routes. Long rural routes are really expensive, and if, you know, if you were able to see the, the operating data about the per trip subsidy and some of the rural routes we've already got in Scotland, it is utter utterly eye-watering and it is in that it would be cheaper to put everybody in a taxi territory yeah. and even the borders railway which of course is seen as being this great success its revenue requirement is much higher it's about um, four times than was, higher than, than was forecast yeah yeah it's, it's, and yeah. you know and with the best will in the world reopening routes in the northeast to Buchan or whatever from Aberdeen is going to make absolutely no difference to Scotland's net carbon output the amount of model ships you're going to get in Aberdeenshire the home of the oil and gas industry and four by fours, you know, it's not it's not really a carbon priority. So there's a huge dose of realism required here. And as you say, it's obviously disappointing for people that want the reopening programme to continue and thought that their line was next, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, if we're serious about decarbonisation and getting the fiscal 
um, status of the industry under control, we've got to focus on fixing what we've got. It is, and this is, and it's kind of, we'll kind of come to it shortly, actually. But, but yeah, in fact, I will hold off. The discussion about monetary sovereignty, I think, is one that we'll very briefly touch on. Um, the next thing, possibly slightly more optimistic, is about urban transit in in Scotland. Uh, and uh, obviously, one of the things that you champion is the is the Clyde Metro. Um, perhaps tell us uh, very, very briefly. Tell us what this is and how how likely it is you think this is going to be delivered in the next ten over the next sort of ten twenty years. And, and how this, again, ties into ScotRail and, and, and a, and a nationalised ScotRail. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been involved in quite a few initiatives to try and get government to take urban transport more seriously. Mm. So the devolved era of both administrations has been largely about lots of really significant infrastructure investment in intercity transport, both the road network and more recently the rail network, and it's great. We had to catch up. There hadn't been a lot of that done before devolution and you know the quality of the network and its capacity etc has improved remarkably over that period so that's great but we've done very little relatively to improve urban transport and the new projects review recognizes that and it's not just about glasgow and um, importantly in edinburgh it's you know really focused on substantive extensions to the tram network yeah. great to see the SFP administration doing that of course because they tried to cancel it in 2007 when they came in but yeah. you know that's another argument for so it was one through political persuasion and circumstance, but nonetheless, so Edinburgh's lots of LRT expansion. Aberdeen, where lots of very high quality roads have been built recently, and also it's a very polycentric economy. The city centre isn't dominant in the employment market the way it is in the central belt cities. Yeah. You know, quite ambitious bus rapid transit and um, proposals there as well. So that's so great. In Glasgow, um, and then by that I mean the Glasgow City region. So that's a map of roughly sort of what ten kilometres from the centre. Um, more or less it's that scale that's been ignored and that scale in Glasgow and about what you do for the transport network has been a thing in political debate since ironically the nationalisation of the British Transport Commission in 1947 <laughs> which is when projects like the extension of the subway because they were you know, the trams because they were controlled by local government yeah. where Kybos to use another great example of the local vernacular so you know what you do about transport in the Glasgow metropolitan area has been an issue for a long time the metro is about two things. One, um, Glasgow still has the lowest car ownership just about of any major metropolitan area in the UK. It does, however, have massively high car use for its ownership. Interesting. You know, so there's lots yeah. of informal car sharing going on. We suffer from bad planning mistakes still where housing, you know, for decades was built in the wrong place. So it's a very car-dominated economy. Yeah. If we're going to meet carbon emissions, this is what we've got to fix in Scotland. This is where those emissions are going to be made. To do that, in short term, we've got, we've got this rail infrastructure, much of which is very old. You know, it's often said that Glasgow has the third oldest underground railway in the world, subway. If you count the line, the low-level route under Queen Street, which, of course, looks a lot like the Metropolitan Line in London, <laughs> it would actually be the second oldest subway in the world, if you thought of that as a subway and not a railway. So we've got this infrastructure, which is old, needs radical reform, but by and large, it's actually in the right place. Mm, yeah. And there's lots of dormant bits in the network. So a lot of those lines that you see there are actually reopenings, things that closed in some cases long before beaching. So the, the northwest quadrant, the thin orange line is the reopening of a route which closed to passenger traffic in First World War. But it serves some of the most densely populated parts of the UK. So there's a lot you could do with this network. And um, we reckon that we can probably get about four times as many passengers on it as are there today if you make the right decisions and you save bucket loads 
uh, of carbon and you make the long-term financial um, position of the network much more sustainable uh, as well. So it's it's a really clever project. It's been around in various forms for a long time. And this is its latest one. I don't think there's been political commitment to doing this in this kind of way before. You know, let's see where the rhetoric is translated into action. So, so one of the things I'm thinking with this is that, um, yes, this would challenge the hegemony of, of, of heavy rail, but actually, perhaps this is a benefit of, of, of ScotRail being nationalised, is that you can get the cross-pollinisation revenue-wise in a way that you couldn't if it, you know, is there a, is there a benefit there, actually? Because Well, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think the continuing non-devolution of the network rail is going to be much more problematic here. Okay, yeah. Because if, yeah. if we're into con- actually converting existing routes into metro, which is what the thick orange lines are about there as part of the core of the network, that opens up all of those really thorny governance and yeah. Uh, revenue questions again so you know that that could yet be problematic yeah. it must be said however that well two things one and um, there is a more detailed version of that map that exists with some options for what might actually be the projects that we do rather than the proof of concept which mm. that map shows before anybody gets excited excitable it's probably not foiable because it's advice to ministers so you won't get a hold of it but there is lots of thinking that's going on about it, and Network Rail have been a really important part of doing that. And they're really up for this. They're not precious about whether it remains their infrastructure or not, and they're fully signed up to the project, which is about making a proper rad- rapid transit network for the metropolitan area work and get people out of cars. That's fantastic. That is good to hear. And, yeah, um, very reassuring. There's lots of... I mean, Glasgow is such a... It already has fantastic... I mean, it's funny, isn't it? It has fantastic... It has an incredibly... An excellent urban and suburban rail network, but it sounds like Abbott, it's Abbott. still not used much. So my local station is three minutes scamper down the hill in the morning, or four minutes puff up the way. So if you're like me, if you live in a prosperous suburb that grew up with the railway, yeah. and right in the corner you can see some of the original railway villas that really did grow up with the railway, yeah, we've actually got European-level public transport. A lot of my fellow Glaswegians don't, and of course they're the people that are most in the most deprived parts of the city, have least access to jobs, particularly those jobs that are not in the city centre, yeah. that have grown up in new kind of zones of um, economic activity. So a lot of what you see here is about actually trying to make inclusive growth work in a transport sense, yeah. uh, and extending the fixed, tran- fixed public transport network parts of the city that need it most but don't have it and it's a familiar story in, in, in places like manchester as well because you know manchester has decent suburban rail in a few quarters but again those are the ones that still remain are in traditionally more affluent areas partly because the railway's been there the whole time you know there's this bit of a feedback loop and actually the you know the areas that are more deprived rely on buses and the buses are dreadful in manchester um uh, they're very expensive anyway they might be reasonably high density and i think the story is similar in glasgow the buses are not great and the cost of the buses is quite high um yeah i think if you were to find somebody who called them not great you'd be doing well yeah (laughs) yes i've been very polite um okay so that's that's the way that urban transit uh, networks are going to grow so we touched on this network rail um how the hell does ScotRail's privatization tie in with network rail and i suppose a little bit back to how the hell gbr will then tie into this as well all unknown i suppose well this is fun isn't it so um in practical terms, you know that Abilio, when they bid for the franchise, bid for a, a, a deep alliance and didn't end up being quite as deep as it was originally going to be in um, the original traditions of franchise. But nonetheless, it's an alliance that exists and it still exists. Mm. So in Scotland Railway, 
the overall, overarching brand that still exists for the moment, yeah. um, is an alliance of public sector Scotrail operated companies, Scotrail trains, and Network Rail. So let's see how that happens. Now, interestingly, and I will try and choose my words very carefully here to make sure I reflect what's in the public domain. Network Rail is relaxed about devolution because they see operational devolution as something that's been advantageous to the operation of the company. Um, and if you want, you know, there is no better example of that than what's happened to the price of electrification in Scotland because we've been doing more of it. It's now about £2 million per track kilometre and that's £1 million less than it is in England. So it's beginning to make real operational differences. I don't think Network Rail would have had a problem with legislative devolution of railway infrastructure to the Scottish Parliament. Um, their operations here are set up that I think they could cope with that quite easily. Mm. So I don't think there's a kind of industry political pushback. It's become a completely toxic issue between the two yeah. governments. You know, the Scottish government has asked at times politely and at times less politely for devolution of, rail, of network rail to occur. And um, the DFT, particularly under Shaps, has said no. Um, mm. And for obvious reasons that that undermines the whole GBR prospectus, as it were. So, you know, Union Connectivity the, the Review, railways are still, in, still on the front line of the constitutional debate in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that then ties into the last point, which is about Treasury, about Treasury's grip, but also about monetary sovereignty. Um, and I suppose it's worth, perhaps, I'm conscious we're going to, hopefully you don't mind a little overrun, sorry, sorry Ian, um, but uh, it's it's worth kind of pointing out the issue with Westminster benefits from being able to borrow from itself, essentially, via the Bank of England. Scotland, the Scottish government, do not have that function. They do not have their own sovereign currency. So I don't know whether you want to touch on that briefly and how that might influence things. And, and you've already talked about the fact that, you know, I, I think you were pointing out that, that, that a driver and a, and a senior nurse are on a similar salary and, and there are questions like that that previously wouldn't exist that perhaps aren't questions that are so important in Westminster, actually. And I, you know, I make the case for the fact that it is not so important. Unfortunately, I can't make the same case in Scotland because it doesn't work like that, frankly. Scotland does not have monetary sovereignty. So maybe you want to talk briefly on that and, and other challenges. No, yeah, so I mean, let, let's not open up another three hours debate about what would happen to the railways under more constitutional reform and independence <laughs> yeah. and currency change and all that. Um, the reality is that the administration currently uh, has very limited borrowing, borrowing powers. I mean, they can only borrow from capital. Mm. Um, from memory, it's something like 500 million a year. So I mean, it's really it's not trivial. a big amount of money in the, in the grander scheme of things. So it operates on a fixed budget and it's obliged by law to balance that budget every year. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding further constitutional change that may happen in the future, whatever that is, um, that's a really tight fiscal envelope or, or discipline for the industry to have to operate under. And so, um, you know, this is the thing about ScotRail um, coming to the public sector that I don't think has been truly understood by many people that advocated for it. It means that the expectations in terms of what the industry delivers for public investment are now even higher than they were before. Mm. And that will feed through to issues about, you know, why do we employ this many people in the railway when we could do with more nurses or spend money on something else? So, you know, the railway um, community has traditionally argued about the redistribution of funds within the transport budget. You know, spend less on roads because we need to get people out of the car to spend it on the railway. Not like that anymore. Spend more money on railways, you spend less on hospitals. And that's a truism. Yeah. And I just don't think that the, in the industry is ready for that because that's a level of day-to-day -day political scrutiny about the value for money that we get from the industry, which we just haven't had in decades and never under 
um, the devolved era in Scotland. And I actually think that's going to be quite healthy. It's going to be very difficult, but I think it's going to be healthy. But it'll be bumpy as we adjust to that. Yeah, it's an argument I often... Exactly, I absolutely agree. It's the, the, the reality is that the same money was being spent, right? Like, it's not like there's suddenly... since When the shift happened, there wasn't suddenly a massive change in the amount of money being spent. It's just that it's now all on the books for everyone to scrutinise in as much detail as they wish to. And and yeah, likewise, like for me, you know, I advocate, I, I believe in the fact that railways should be state-operated, but I'm under no illusions that that scrutiny, you know, whilst it's a good thing, that scrutiny can, will, can and will be painful for a lot of people well, in the, the industry. The one, the one thing that's changed slightly, actually, is the level of risk that was transferred to the operator, okay, yeah. right? And that, that was never very much. But the pay settlement was always a, a bit of an aspect of risk for the incumbent. And it was managed by the incumbent talk and, and all the rest of it. And mm. um, that's now brought into the public sector pay bargaining system as well. So, you know, difficult things will happen as a result of that. And I'm no, I've no doubt we'll see that in the first round. Yeah. One thing we should have said actually in the intro about, about privatisation is that one of the other theoretical justifications, of course, for privatisation was that it, it affected a transfer of risk from the public sector to the private sector. So we kind of learned with real track that that wasn't true. Yeah, <laughs> we've certainly, certainly learned with COVID that that isn't true. Yeah. So you know the justification for privatisation on that basis that you know private sector is better at understanding risk, better at uh, finding the right risk appetite and delivering public value or benefit because of that. That's gone forever. Yeah, yeah. That's that's something that government can no longer kind of hide behind, really. Um. Well, that very neat. That, that incredible. It's almost as if you're a professional. This the last the last little question. Um, which is which will be very quick, is is it's a quick one and it's just uh, putting up the old um, the nice old Scotrail regional railways branding there, which actually is quite. Yeah. See, I don't mind if the little du- if a little double arrow appears here and there on the Scotrail liveries. I think that's fine. A little white double arrow, that's fine. But don't go further than that. Um, whoever might be in charge of that. Sorry, I'm digressing. The question is, Ian, do you think it'll be successful? Do you think this is going to be generally okay? There are challenges, but do you think it's going to be good news for Scotland? So. I can't resist the chance to start by talking about branding again. I think you'll find some GDR branding on on those little spaces in the doors that used to have the operator yeah. branding. I think it'll be not a worth not a political battle worth having to add some yeah. red to the livery that we've got. And <laughs> um, will it be successful? It's important to say that the Scotrail network is in better shape than it's ever been. Mm. Right. And um, if I were to take my local train from here into central Glasgow and then go to Edinburgh or Stirling, for example, I would almost think I was in a real functioning European railway. <laughs> nice, you know, yeah. nice trains, comfortable, modern, yep. clean, quick, electric, good stations. It's really not bad. Mm. Let's be honest. It's in a really good state. So, of course, it'll be successful. It does, however, cost a hell of a lot of money to the public purse. And I just don't think that's sustainable politically given the, the overall fiscal outlook and um, whatever happens to Scotland's constitution, constitutional status over the next few years, I don't think that's politically sustainable. I think we're going to have really difficult questions about how much this costs, whether we get value for money. And, you know, in England, you already see that with the Treasury 15% letter, for example. You know, we've avoided that this round in Scotland, but it's coming. And mm. um, Scotland employs a lot of people. Um, the, the first franchise renewal, sorry, the franchise renewal of first group, in many respects, was an economic development decision, which was about creating employment and building up the industry. But 
we've got a lot of people in the industry in Scotland. In many ways, it's a traditional railway. You know, it's very, it's a heavy rail network. Yeah, we haven't done smart ticketing very well. We haven't yeah. done a lot of those other things that lots of European networks will have done. So I think sooner or later, that's going to be the real crunch question, and then that of course opens up, and rightly so in many respects, some really tricky industrial relations questions. Yeah. You know, how many people is this thing going to employ in the future doing what kinds of jobs? How are we going to reward them? What's their job tenure and security going to be like if they're public sector employees? You know, that could be good in Scotland. We've got a no compulsory redundancies assumption still. Um, but that combination of the scale of financial resources yeah. that's uh, directed to the industry and in many respects is it's, and I'm again too tired to think of a more diplomatic phrase, old-fashioned operating culture in many respects at some point that's going to come to a crunch yeah yeah it's it's there are opportunities but this is not just going to be a a land of sort of strawberries and 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 chocolates it's going to be it's there's going to be some bumpy some some bumpy roads ahead or, or bumpy tracks should we say ian um we will. I'll, I'm, that's been brilliant. It's been so good. Um, I'm going to do my outro bits, but we'll come back to you briefly. But that's been that's been a really fascinating kind of exploration of the of the whole picture. I think really nicely. Um, everyone, send your questions in. We'll do questions. But are you all right, Ian, for another five minutes? Are you? Are you yeah, absolutely. Run them? Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Send your questions in. Make sure you at me. Everyone in the chat. Hello, everyone in the chat. I have been watching. Put the at us in, and we'll we'll ask Ian some questions first, though. Um, this is available on all good podcasting platforms, uh, and and so will last week's be when I upload both of them probably tomorrow <laughs> at some point. Um, so uh, yes, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, shout out to all of those listening in in without the pictures. Um, I, I don't know how you manage it, but it seems to work. Um, the next the next thing is uh, yes, patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis uh, to make more of this happen. Uh, the merchandise, particularly the we definitely need to abolish the treasury mugs. Uh, buy those. Uh, there's good. There's going to be a crowdfunding effort to get everyone in Treasury sent one of those mugs. Um, so that's going to be good. Uh, I'm joking, but I'm only half joking. Uh, Masket.co.uk slash collection slash rail matter for those. PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis. If you want to throw abuse at me, you can do so, but it costs you. Um, and GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord is where the chat that's been happening continues in perpetuum, where there are, I think, like 700 plus, maybe 750 people all chatting very politely to each other about railways and transport policy. It's brilliant in there. Uh, you're all lovely. Shout out to all of you in there because the admin team and me have to do essentially no managing of that discussion because everyone's so lovely. So um, you're all great. Um, so that's all that. A plug for Ian, actually. And actually, it's a bit of a plug for a future episode because Ian, yourself, uh, uh, Thinos, Gillian, uh, and Greg have all been working on this paper about the changing travel patterns in the post-pandemic society which is just immensely fascinating it's an incredibly interesting paper um, and, and you said actually there's an update coming that the, or, or some of the work related to it is being updated yeah so one, one of the, the the core data set underpins it all is a, a household survey and um, we started out with about nine and a half thousand households across great britain to um, please mr shaft um, <laughs> ten regions um five in scotland five in england from memory uh, and thank you to our sponsors who boosted the sample to let that happen in particular places. But we've been asking people right from the first lockdown about what's happened to their um, travel habits and how they've been changing. And so we've about, or we are about to start the fourth wave of that mm. um, in about four or five weeks. So that's the only um, longitudinal study of 
people's changing habits that we've got. And it's essentially a kind of travel diary type methodology, but more mm. complex than that. But that's what it is. So it gives us behavioural insights that the account data that you get for different modes don't really reveal. So already some really interesting things about motivations. And then that report in particular was out a few weeks ago. We tried to unpick some of the the claims that you might read in the media about what's really happening that we can't find any evidence for. Yeah. Like, for example, people have not been buying more cars, nor have they been using them more, really. Mm. It's, so so is this going to reflect, so when you've get, got that updated data, will that be reflected in a, an, an updated paper or a revised paper, or, or will it be a new set of, uh, of yeah, the, works? that's the second of the kind of annual reports. So we published one ah, okay. um, on the anniversary of lockdown the first time, and that was almost exactly two years in. So we'll probably do another one of those in 12 months' time. But there are other publications that uh, the four of us are doing, which will get some of that data out um, before next March. Fantastic. So everyone, look look that up because it is it is fantastic. Um, it's it's honestly very very interesting, and it's burst some of the things that, some of my perceptions. You know, I, things that I was being led to believe with frankly an, a, a limited view of data. Uh, it's been really good to have some of that burst, uh, and from my understanding, to be advanced greatly by the the work here. It's, it's really good stuff. Really really good stuff. Um, in other plugs, uh, what is the next? I can't even remember what my next plug is. Ah, yes, that's right. I was on I was last night. I was talking uh, Rail Future. I think this is a, a recording that's available. So if you want to watch related to what um, Ian and I were talking about, uh, how the Integrated Rail Plan uh, lets Yorkshire down, it was quite a good session. And the, Q, the Q&A session afterwards is really, really good. My, my little half hour was pretty... You'll have all seen that me rant on about this stuff before. But actually, the Q&A afterwards is really good. It's really interesting. We talked about the democratisation of of transport we talked about how people are getting less have less of a voice now and it's certainly in gb more broadly certainly in england it was it was really interesting so um yeah if, if you want to go and find that uh you can email the, the event organizers probably to get a copy of the recording if it's not going to be put on youtube or something after that and i think the next thing i'm going to play is a video so me and ian are going to watch this video for two minutes um uh, because it's a plug from a friend of the show it's the red light means it's on right. does, does, right, okay. we're professional <laughs> Hello, I'm Tim Dunn. <laughs> that was nice. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm Fran Scott. <laughs> and we're here at the Brunel Museum to ask you for your help. Yes, now I'm a trustee here at the Brunel Museum. I live locally, and frankly, I've got a big top hat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now the Brunel... The, the Brunel get over that. Now the Brunel Museum is built on top of the Thames Tunnel which was of course built by Mark Brunel, his son Isambard Kingdom and their team of engineers and it was the first ever tunnel under a navig... navig na under a big river. Six takes that's taken. <laughs> this museum is an incredible place for a wonderful collection of wonderful objects relating to the Brunels and this tunnel. But one or more to the point, 30 things are missing. Yeah, 30 remarkable pieces of art. Now, these are watercolours, some of which are drawn by the hand of Mark and his son, Isambard Kingdom, showing the development and the actual construction of the Thames Tunnel. And they show this era of engineering drawing that is almost an art form. They are beautiful. Some of them are isometric drawings, so that's a way to show an engineering drawing with dimensions, which normal perspective drawing wouldn't be able to convey and they're not on display. No, and you can't just stick them up with some blue tack. What we need is we need a curatorial grade display case, and for that, we need your help. Yeah, we need some money, 18,500 pounds. So throughout April, we are running a crowdfunding campaign. A couple of quid, please, if you can afford it. Yeah, or 20. Or maybe even 30. Yeah, or if you give us 100, then you can receive a print of one of these watercolors. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. And all you've got to do is go to www.thebrunelmuseum.com forward slash art fund.
Go on, click on it now. Oh, please, go on, click, go on, click. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. There you go. Thanks, thanks, Tim. <laughs> thanks, Tim and Fran. Friends of the show. Serious face. <clears throat> dead puppies. That's how you get a serious face? By thinking of dead puppies? Do you, how do you get your serious face? I think about trains and scrapyards. <laughs> Thomas the tank engine dying. <laughs> oh. oh. There we go. Thanks, thanks, Tim and Fran. Uh, thanks for waiting for that, Ian. Um, yeah, go go support the the crowdfunding if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, ties into one of our previous episodes about uh, technical drawing. Actually, it's good. Um, next week's episode is uh, about Network Rail's modular design for small and medium stations. It's going to be a pre-record, first one in a while, because I'm I can't remember why. I think I'm doing shenanigans of some kind. Um, but that's next week. Oh, Ian, I'm going to bring you back. Uh, thanks for pausing there, uh, having a sip of tea uh, or whatever. We have several questions. And we're going to be quick, so this we're going to, going to take minutes uh, to do the, these questions. Less, um, we've got two and a half minutes, and we're going to go through these. Michael Booth asks, um, "What can ScotRail do now that they couldn't do before April the first? Uh, nothing. Nothing. There you go. It's a quick and easy question to answer. No, it's a quick fire. It's a quick fire round. Ryan Hogg is asking, "Does ScotRail end at the Scottish border or overlap to Newcastle and Carlisle?" Um, it certainly gets as far as Carlisle. Um, the the status of what happens as far as Newcastle is something I'm not quite sure of these days, but I think when the new stations in East Lothian open, that there is a plan to run increased numbers of local or regional trains between Edinburgh and Newcastle, which will be Scottrail services, although I would need to go away to check that. Yeah, see, I, I thought it was potentially going to all be Transpennine service, services running in those but I again, I don't. I, I'd have to go away and check that. I don't. I don't. I don't fully know. So yeah, question mark on that one. Um, David Shepherd, uh, can any Scottish reopen railway projects create an alter, alternate route that reduces disruption of electrification closures? I don't. I think I can answer that. It's probably not the cost of building a, a diversion route. It, it, you know, even if it involves just a couple of little corners of reopening, are just not. If you talk about the South Sub. Oh yeah, South Sub reinstatement. Do you think that's going to happen? Do you think even that's precluded by by the the reappearance of of, uh, uh, of well, the, the South Sub is like Glasgow Crossrail. It's one of these projects, and people look at railway and go, "Oh look, there's a railway; it should have stations on it." Except there is no case to have passenger stations on it whatsoever, because the bus. So the, you know the geography; it's it's like a flattened oval. Yeah. So people think they can get a train from down here and post South Edinburgh and arrive at Waverley. But actually, the distance he travels, what, four or five times it would be if he just got a bus in a straight line. You know, so uh, where the South Sub is really, really interesting is in, in creating freight capacity and the resilience of the passenger network in the net of Waverley yeah. um, and reliability of freight market to Waverley. So it, it probably will happen for network management reasons. But passenger stations, no, can't see it. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you have more tram down there anyway. Tram, tram's the board. I was going to say I've always said if you are going to do stuff for the South Sub, I think tram tying it into tram train type operations is is probably a sensible use of that infrastructure. If if you do want to tie certain elements of it in, still in still in the wrong place. It is. It's, it's the wrong axis really. People don't route. people don't really travel that way in Edinburgh. I lived in Edinburgh for like, five it's, years. It's, it's it's best example. The best allegory is probably the Petit Saint in Paris. Hmm. So it's the same kind of route, you know, and it's also most of it's really inaccessible because the vertical elevation is really yeah. different from the street level around where it is. So in, in accessibility terms, it's a nightmare as well. No, sorry, can't see it. Yeah, it's, they're very expensive stations to build if you were going to do it and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so Gareth Williams, what is the collective opinion of the effect of Labour's threat to renationalise BR if they were to win 
uh, the net or GBR if they were to win the next election. Well, I think that's so. I think that's fallen away as a threat in it, with the current Labour Party. But um, Ian, I don't know if you've got thoughts on that. Um, that hasn't registered up here at all. Yeah, 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 rightly so. Uh, Gregor asks, Gregor McCabry asks, uh, should we be more hopeful and fearful um, about the newly nationalised ScotRail or will there be yet more cutbacks? Um, uh, I suppose we've kind of half answered that, but I, I don't know if you've got any, you know, uh, are you more hopeful than fearful, fearful Ian? Um, it's too early to tell. Mm, okay, yeah. Noises I hear from people who know inside the industry up here tell me that they are relatively optimistic about what might be able to be done on both the revenue side and cost reduction side so that they can present a picture to the government that's not too scary. But, you know, as we said, it's back to the point you made earlier on about the macro trends out there are the ones that matter. Yeah. You know, energy crisis, folks, cost of living crisis, and God knows where this horrendous war is going to end up. And these are really, really big impacts on everything and everybody of of which the Scottish budget is some part. So, you know, there is no hiding place now. It's fully part of public spending. It's it's accounted for on the same basis as every other public service every year in the annual Scottish budget. So that's a pretty bright light of accountability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ScotRail, to be fair, um, have said that they're just trying to go here as a starting point and they don't expect to cut anything and they want to build back from it. And we've, we've only gone back to the kind of service levels that we had in 2015, 2016. So although we're running less than before the pandemic, um, we were trying to run too many trains and infrastructure that couldn't cope with it, frankly. Um, it's not as if we've gone back to a, a timetable which is drastically reduced. I mean, there are some lines that have got meaningful reductions, of which mine is one, and off people have gone to half early rather than 15 minutes. But at a network level, you know, it's, it's not dreadful if we can stay at this position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I, I, to be honest, I, you know, I think that's a neat place for us to to draw a line under it. Actually, that that kind of that that view. Uh, Jamie's asked asked some questions about papers for macro effects, but I think what to do is probably look up, probably tweet Ian that you can find Ian on Twitter. Um, Ian, I, I'm I'm throwing you in it. People are now going to start at you for paper references like like there's no tomorrow. Uh, Jamie, go go to Twitter, find Ian on that's there. That's fine. I'll just I'll just remember to tweet about politics and red wine for the duration and see if that. <laughs> That's it. that's it ian this has been an absolute pleasure really i think that's been a really interesting and broad but also quite targeted discussion of the subject um it's been brilliant it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on everyone thanks in the chat for joining as well uh it's been great it's been a really interesting episode uh, about 100 of you were uh, joining for a while which is good some some nice numbers um ian it only really remains for us both to sort of say goodbye to everyone so uh, so yeah i, I think uh, cheerio from from both of us cheerio everyone cheerio thanks everyone bye Thank you.